0: good evening if you were not here last week the notes from last week are up here on the stage okay what's up good can i use this yeah go
1: how you guys doing
0: it's kind of creepy does
1: this make you as uncomfortable as it makes me and jeff (laughs) hey you guys have a phenomenal teacher right here did you know that I'm so thankful for Jeff. So uh, some people have been asking, when are we starting Leviticus? I keep talking about Leviticus. So Leviticus is going to start the week after we finish Joshua in our series. So I'm going to start it on. Ecclesiastes with Jeff Cox. Thanks, Jeff. Yes.
0: All right, so if you don't have the notes, they're up here, and then the notes were out there. So what I'm going to do, just for, um, because I know a lot of you couldn't be here last week, I know we had a um, men's event, know the weather's bad. So I'm going to take you through a review real quick to bring us uh, up to speed, and I'll talk about the tricycle for who who wasn't there. So Ecclesiastes uh, can be interpreted wrong a lot of the time, okay? And so, I'll just begin here. These are things we went through last week quickly. We're going to go with uh, Solomon as the author, okay? And in the notes, there's all the debate about that. The audience, and this is probably the thing I really want you to understand, there is a passage at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it says this, Remember your creators in the days of thy youth. Now, I'm not going to do a test to see who considers himself young. I'm just going to say, I don't anymore. Okay? I'm 52. I can't obey that verse anymore. Well, you're young at heart. 50 is the new... Whatever. <laughs> the book is written to somebody young. Okay? So I call the millennials under the sun, and you say, I'm not a millennial. And here's what I really want you to get out of the book. Solomon, based on the, probably the context of the book, older, he's passing this wisdom down to someone who's younger. So what would you pass on to a millennial? What would you tell him? It could be in this church. It could be somebody you're discipling. It could be your children. It could be grandchildren. Meaning, he gives you the context of the book, Remember your creators in the days of thy youth. You say, I don't have those days anymore. And then he tells this, before the evil days come, it isn't about sin. The evil days in the book of Ecclesiastes will be when you can't enjoy food anymore. You can't walk like you used to. And you don't have pleasure in your life like you used to. He's saying, remember your creator in the days of thy youth when they're young. So that's the audience. Here's the big word that's, um, it's not really debated, but uh, the word havel in Hebrew. It's the word that will appear of the 70 sometimes it appears in your Old Testament, 30 sometimes in the book of Ecclesiastes. Most often, translated vanity. Now, this is very important. A lot of Bible translations later have assigned a moral value to it. And I'm just letting you know, you might have a translation and you're going to see the word meaningless. It's common. The problem with that, that's not really the Hebrew word. Because when I think of something that is meaningless, it's kind of a moral judgment to it. And we spend a lot of time, and it's in your notes. You can go through it, where this word comes from, comparing Scripture with Scripture, letting the Bible define it. Habel literally means transitory or unsubstantial. And this is the illustration I used last week. I used to be a junior high pastor. And I would bring students from Springfield up here to go to Worlds of Fun. It was a big deal. It was a Bible reading trip. If they read through their Bible, they got to do that. And I would drop them off at the park. And the first thing I would do is I would take my watch off and give it to somebody else. And I would tell all my junior high students, I don't have a watch either. But I will be back on time to take away the excuse that will come. I didn't have a watch. Me either. I'll do that. And you turn them loose. For a junior high student, they're the greatest um, group to minister to because you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is remove them from your parents and they're good to go. They're happy. And the day would fly by. You know what their day was? Vain. Not vain like we think of sin or somebody's full of pride. Vanity means unsubstantial and transitory. It's gone. How quick? Like that. And Solomon's going to argue through this book, our life is vanity, vanity. Not meaningless, meaningless, and not some sort of sin. He's just saying, it goes by so what? Fast. Okay? Okay. Um, I could just share with you, a week ago, I get two texts with an hour of each other. I wake up. Two of my friends that attend this church, I've grown up with both of them most of my life, close to my age. Two dads have died. Went to the funeral yesterday for one in Springfield. A good friend of mine, Teresa Beatty, I've known since fifth grade. And then another friend, uh, Kalila Holland, who lost her father as well, that's in a small group. A lot of us in this room are in the same small group. What age am I? I'm at the age where my friend's parents die. And eventually, my parents will what? Die. Ecclesiastes talks about that. It talks about, and I I was talking, um, paradigm's going through Ecclesiastes too. I was talking to Chad the other day about it. And actually, we're going to kind of spend some time going through it. Ecclesiastes is the book, and they're much younger than me, 20 years. Ecclesiastes is the book that yells to their age, slow down. Slow down. Spend time with your children. Spend time with each other. Find things to enjoy. It is the book, and it's not pessimistic that is you're just flying through like slow down because it's going to go by real what fast uh, you will date it a lot of you in here have looking at age you'll be at the same seasons as me children or grandchildren i think i blinked in my i told you last week my granddaughter came from home from kindergarten with a boyfriend <laughs> what that's what vanity means unsubstantial in the Hebrew and transitory, is just flying by. But rather than be cynical and pessimistic, Solomon gives us something to do. But if you're sitting here and you're saying, well, life is flown by in 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you're still supposed to slow down and enjoy your what? Life, that's going to be the thing. But what you want to pass on to a millennial generation, if you want to have wisdom and you want to speak into their life, you're the voice telling him to what? Because I think back when I was in my 20s, I wasn't slowing down for anything. I was flying. And all of a sudden, those years will disappear from them too. And that's what Solomon's doing, okay? Under the sun, this phrase only appears in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's physical life on earth. And this is why the book is difficult. A few times Solomon will tease at eternity. In chapter 3, he does big time. The book's not about eternity, The book's not about heaven. The book, by definition, and we'll see it later, it's in the notes, the book is about life on this planet from the day you were born till the day you what? Die. That's hard for us because we usually don't study books like that. So there's going to be this tension with other things. Because you're going to read something in the book, and it's going to say something like, um, you know what, I have a dog, two dogs, maybe and not. Here's what Ecclesiastes says. I'm going to die the same way as my dogs. You say, that's depressing. But is it true? It's not about heaven, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, hopefully I'm not going to be taken by Jana into a vet and, you know, give it a shot while she holds me and a look into my arms. You know, I don't really want that to happen. But the book of Ecclesiastes is going to say that. Everything in Ecclesiastes is under the sun. God will tease at it a little bit, but it's about this life right here, right now. Now, here's the theme. There's three relationships in the book, and this is the handout I gave you, okay? There's a relationship between man and life. There's a relationship between God and life, and a relationship between God and man. That's the triangle. It's... Um, This sheet up here, you can get it later, that I have it mapped out, okay? And there is a tension between these. So here is the first one, man and life. So here's the first big idea that Solomon has, life limits man. I did this last week, but I'm going to do it again. In what way am I limited in this life? There's many ways, but give me some. Gravity, I can't go anywhere I want. In fact, I could travel my whole life. Will I ever see this whole world? I'm limited. What else limits me? Time. Time, I only have so much. And God will say it's actually uh, predetermined unless I do something very wicked. It's an interesting concept in the book. I'm limited in time. Well, I'll put that off. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. And then pretty soon you wake up and you never what did it. I'm limited in a lot of ways. I was teaching my class this morning about studying the Bible in context. And Paul told the Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. You know what? Um, It's funny. Phil's here. He always talks about him and Pat Koontz. You know, when they used to be able to dunk, I always wanted to be able to dunk. I remember watching Michael Jordan and Dominic Wilkins in a dunk contest. I remember my friends and I used to plan a nine-foot goal just to dunk. I got news for you. I was never going to want. I dunked a volleyball. I mean, that was good for me. I was never going to dunk. I'm limited in my what? Skills. Abilities. We're joking. Seth Curry puts on his tennis shoe. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means championships, MVPs, NBA. I write that on my tennis shoe. The last time I bought basketball tennis shoes, I was Dick's Sporting Goods, and the young man looked across. He says, you buying those for your son? I said, you want to shut up? (laughs) But I didn't. I'm limited in my gifts, my skills, my ability. So many things in this life limits. You say, well, that's so depressing. But there's going to be a conclusion, and we'll get to it tonight. Solomon's going to say, you know what the best thing you can do with this life that is so limiting? You ought to what? You ought to enjoy it. It's going by fast. Are you? And it's not hedonism. It's not we just live for ourselves. There's parameters. He tells you how to, and we'll get to that. But Are you? You know, I I said last week, we spend a lot of time with people who are grieving, a lot of time, and it's important to grieve. But this is a cliche, and we tell them this. You don't get to decide how long you live, but you'll decide how long you grieve. Um, I'm not plugging in, but Pastor Phil this morning going through the book of Joshua. You don't get to decide how long you live, but you'll decide how long you'll be addicted to something. Meaning, You know, one of my favorite movies, Shawshank Redemption, get busy living or get busy dying, but get busy doing something. And so the idea is, though, you're supposed to be enjoying this life. So the question, this book's very liberating, are you? Next is God and life, and we're going to see this tonight. God designed life. It's not just this haphazard thing. It's intentional. God has designed it. It is a gift to you, which means this, it works a certain way. And our life is supposed to, according to Ecclesiastes, glorify who? God. Next after that, God and man. God reveals himself to man. And then at the end, there's a conclusion to the book, man is to fear God. That's not the theme of the book, by the way. That's a conclusion to the book. There's a difference. The theme of the book is to enjoy this life God's given you. Now, why the tricycle? I use this every time you teach it. If you have children or grandchildren and you go back to two years old in their life and you give them a tricycle... On Christmas morning, and I asked this last week, so this is review, so if you were here last week, you can just say it. What do you want to see happen when you give that tricycle to that child? They ride it. They ride it. Meaning they don't just study it. They don't just look at it. You want to actually see them ride the what? Tricycle. And it also means this: ride it correctly. Now, you can say well, they can ride it anyway. You don't want to see them pushing it, dragging it. You want to teach them how to ride it. Here's the point. Just like this tricycle's designed, your life is designed. Ecclesiastes is giving you, really, the instructions on how to enjoy it and things that won't happen correctly in your life. But just like the tricycle's designed, there's a way to live your life. You oh, I'll just live it however I want and it'll work out. No, it won't. And we'll see that tonight. What else would you want? And not because you're a narcissist. What else would you want when you give that tricycle to that child? You would want them to be what? Thankful. thankful. It is a gift. Something, thank you, mom, dad, aunt, uncle, brother, sister, grandma, grandpa, Gregor, whatever. You would want them to be thankful. And when God says, okay, I gave you the life. Remember your creators in days of your youth. I want you to be what? Thankful for it. And the last thing is if they had a sibling, and there's two of them. My wife's here, our grandchildren. We would not want to see the six-year-old take the tricycle and hit what? The two-year-old with it. Ecclesiastes will talk about that. You've been given this gift, that's your life, but you can't use the gift to harm what? Other people. You're supposed to love them. I don't know who they care My wife's favorite book is The Great Gatsby. Who's the couple that just runs into people through their whole life, the the quote? Daisy and Tom. And just thing: they just seem to run into people their whole life. You know what? Our life is supposed to make a difference in people's life. We're supposed to be relational. We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to better their lives, meaning we just can't take this tricycle and what? run over people with it are you with me so if you always think the tricycle what is Ecclesiastes about it is a gift given to you this life under the sun right now are you enjoying it do you know how to ride it so you can enjoy it are you thankful for it and then after that are you not using it to what hurt other people okay when was it written written probably 910 to 930 BC. The reason I put this up here is got about a thousand years before Christ. Plato and Aristotle are the philosophers that will come along later. Uh, Plato comes out in your book Micah, your Old Testament prophet. They were living about the same time. Solomon's going to write his philosophy on life long before the Greek philosophers write theirs, okay, 500 years before. I'm gonna talk about some philosophy stuff for a second. I, I find it interesting. If you're bored, I'll get through it quickly, I promise, and get on, but I do find it interesting. Okay. The reader's application. There's two extremes. One is eternity is everything, this life is nothing. Okay? This life doesn't matter, it doesn't matter at all. The other extreme is this life is everything, eternity is nothing. The problem with that is simple. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, when did eternal life begin? Now or when you die? Now. You have it now. And it's not even most of the time talking about a duration. It's talking about a relationship. Jesus said when he prayed in John 17 that they might know the Father. This is what eternal life is. So the whole idea here is there's this tension. And it was a really good question last week. Well, Paul talks about our life being a vapor looking onto eternity. Yes, in one sense, we are looking onto eternity and the principles of that. Ecclesiastes is the book that just shouts at you, but this life matters what? Now. They both matter. So there's your tension. This is kind of nerdy, but this is important, I think, to value your life. 30,000 active genes in the human sphere, the possible encoding for that, your DNA, is one followed by 10,000 zeros. That's how many p- potential human beings exist in our DNA code, okay? This is a guess. This came out of a secular existential book. Yes, I read those. I'm a dork, okay? Okay. So I'm not getting into biblical and things like that, but I'm just, from a secular point of view here, they would say 40 to 100 billion humans have existed. I'm not saying biblically or times, I'm just saying DNA, how long we've been around. The fraction of genetically possible human beings who have been born is less than and you have zero to the one at the end, insert 9,979 more zeros. Here's what that means. And this is kind of a biology lesson. <laughs> of all the sperm and all the eggs that ever existed, the overwhelming to that degree that we're ever here never got together. Now, I won't get into biology and why that is so, but, you know... I just won't. If you have a questions about that, ask Phil after. He'd be happy to go through that. But here's the, the deal. And here's the point of that. The probability that you exist is astronomically against that ever happening. I just want you to let that sink in. Of all the sperm and eggs and possible DNAs, that you even exist, that you're even in this room, is beyond. Beyond mathematical probability that that would ever happen. Now, we take it for granted because we're what? I'm breathing. I'm hanging out. And we'll get past this. The perspective. Our existence is designed. So Dawkins, who is an atheist, (laughs) said this. We have won the most improbable lottery. We exist. Now, we take it for granted because we do. But you have won the the, the lottery beyond all. All probability that you exist in this universe at all. Philosopher, so Dawkins would say, we're the lucky ones. And that's one philosophical view. Okay? You're lucky. It just happened by chance. Opetus clonus to play, I won't get into that. You can Google that later if you want. But there's another view on existence and this is the darker one it's this uh never to be born is best of all and that is a philosophy that is held by many and the reason is all we exist to do is eventually what and eventually this life is full of sorrow now this gets into things that are beyond me in fact i'm over here nephew andy castro here loves this stuff talks about it more than i do okay But the whole idea, the biggest philosophical question that's ever asked is simply this Why is there something instead of nothing? Okay? Now we have an answer for it, and it's Solomon's. His philosophy is this Your existence is not lucky, it's by what? Design. And it's a, and this is the theme of Ecclesiastes, it's a gift. That's Solomon's point. If you're sitting here tonight, and, and, and just for a second, uh, I, I like to do this with me. We're all going to take a deep breath together. Ready? This is good for you to do every once in a while. Do this with me. Go. Let it out. You know what that was? That's a gift. That's a gift. You're here, and it matters. That's the gift. Solomon also was this, we saw it last week. He's a scientist. Well, what do you mean by that? The things he writes in the book under the inspiration of God are things he what? Observed. He said around and he said, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this, I saw this. Well, how would you mentor a millennial? How would you talk to a millennial? From your experience, I've seen this. And an awesome father, I'm blessed he's still with me. I shared last week, what do I do? Once a month, I will go to Springfield and have lunch with my dad. Why? Life's vanity. I never get so busy, I won't do that. But what my dad was good about was telling me stories growing up. You know, I was a boy, I wouldn't want to talk about stuff. Jeffrey, I remember when I was in junior high, ba, 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 Jeffrey, I remember when I was in grade school, ba,, ba. But he was telling me stories about who? Me. Well, how would I talk to a millennial? Not as a know-it-all, not as a here's what you do, not as an advice giver. You know, I've observed some things in my life and tell a story about who? Yourself. And then just be what? Quiet. Now we'll get into the psychology of it. You lodge that in their mind, they'll think about it. How do I talk to my adult children? Well, news flash. and if you came to counseling, you'd have to pay me to get this, but you're going to get it for you tonight. I want to give my adult children advice, fine, only after you've asked their what? Permission.
2: Oh, what?
0: They're still living in my home. Well, that's another issue. <laughs> okay. Well, how would I talk to them? Not tell them what to do and try to be clever about it, but tell them a story about things you've what? Observed, and then what? Well, they're not, yeah, well later they'll think about it what gives life existence meaning, and person until the 1800s almost everyone focused on essence something about the human being Plato was big on that Nietzsche comes along later and says life is meaningless nihilism the birth of existentialism it's not the birth the next guy he was a Christian the next guy Soren Kierkegaard and basically their arguments we exist then we find our meaning but nothing is designed But Solomon says this, Solomon observed life inspired by God, and he said life is a what? A gift. He said our life is designed by what? God. And he said we live life well when we understand do, and that's the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want your children and your grandchildren to enjoy their life, then Ecclesiastes is the book to tell them how to do that. Are you with me so far? All right, there's your introduction. So, how does Solomon overlap with existentialism? This is kind of dark, but this is truth. We don't like to think about this, but it's healthy for us. Number one, we are free beings living in a designed universe. If you were in the service this morning and heard Phil, he said this. God has his part, but you also have your what? Part. This life is designed. This universe is designed. But you are what? Free. Solomon really makes a big deal out of that. Next, we have self-consciousness. We know we are alive. It matters to us, and we search for meaning. I love both of my dogs, maybe and not. They do not have self-awareness. I pretend like they do because it makes the conversations more fun. One of the things I enjoy more than anything is uh, watching my wife, Jana, talk to the dogs as if they are human. It's enjoyable. But my dogs, as much as I want to believe it, don't sit around at home laying on the couch. Why am I here? They don't ever think this. One day I'll what? They don't think that. Well, they appear happier. Maybe I'll be happier, they don't do that. But you have something in you that evolution will never explain. And it's the fact we can even sit here and think that we exist. Animals, plants, they don't have that. Number three, and this is a big deal that Solomon says, we know we're going to die. Jeff, is it healthy to think about death? Yes! Because if you don't, your life will just what? Fly by. Doesn't mean that you're depressed. It doesn't mean that you're fearful in our series, but it does mean you need to have self-awareness that one day you'll what? You'll die. And what you do with that knowledge will greatly determine how much you enjoy your what? Life right now. And next, the book of Ecclesiastes is what I call reality. It's the way life works, and we'll get into it a little bit. Now, I was listening to something with Janice. She played some research for me the other day. We do fun things too. Sometimes we just binge watch on Netflix. I'm not always this. But I will tell you the society we live in now. For the first time in the United States, life expectancy is going down for the last three years. Two things. One has already, one will soon surpass the cause of death that gets us all prematurely, which is vehicular things. Why do you think our life is? What two factors do you think are entering into the United States that now we are going, despite all the medicine and the fact they can hook you up to a machine and just keep you alive? What is happening so substantial now that we're living less time? Suicide. We kill ourselves, and our children kill themselves. From when I started in ministry to overseeing a counseling center here now, to schools, it is not uncommon. I have preached funerals for teenagers who killed themselves, but they were far and few between when I was a student pastor. Suicide. The other thing, if you don't know it, is addictions. We OD. While we were arguing over pot, Big Pharma sold us all oxy for our pain. And we got addicted to opioids, and then they threw fentanyl at us, and now we're hooked to society, and then we OD. Now let those sink in. That's depressing, but here for us, for our life, then what do we tell a younger generation and ourselves to enjoy our life and not end it and addict ourselves out of it? Because I got news for you money and jobs and all of that stuff is not going to be the answer. The answer will be your life is designed by who? God, and it's a what? It's a gift. Now, we are all alive in 2019. So here's what that means. I exist at this moment in time in this country, to tell a society where suicides on the rise and addiction that that is not the answer and you are too so don't be depressed by it that is your mission field <laughs> what answer do we have for them okay what answer do we have for them and ecclesiastes will provide a lot of that all right so here we go this is starting at the bottom of page 13 Ecclesiastes 1, 4-7, so I'll read the passage. There's some science stuff in here now. And um, the guy who taught the uh, well before me when you were here, go ask him all that science stuff. <laughs> I'm going to get into the poetry stuff, so here we go. One generation passes away, the other generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes towards the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls around, about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. What is this? This is Solomon starting to tell you how to enjoy your life. What does that? How does that help me enjoy my life? Here we go. Solomon approaches this phys- philosophical discourse as a scientist which is similar to how Aristotle will do it later. But rather than read the opinions of others, Solomon relied on his own observations and experiences. So here we go. The main idea of this passage, what you're seeing, is summarized as follows. Paths are certain, there are patterns to life, and these patterns are designed by God. Life, there is a path in this world for every man, and that path is certain, we are born and we die on planet Earth, but get this, but the Earth abides what? Forever. Now, how does that make you feel? You come, you go, you come, you go, you come, you go, generation, generation, but what stays forever? The Earth. I, uh, don't make fun of me. I know it's a chick flick kind of song, not to get into gender, but the whole song about I Hope You Dance you don't know it, go listen to it. I hope you still, st- still feel small when you stand beside the what? The ocean. Meaning the fact that people go, people go, come and go, come and go, come and go, but the earth stays here forever makes us small. Jerome stated the irony of the verse. What is more vain than this? The earth which was made for humans stay, but human themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into the dust. You need this perspective to live under the what? Sun successfully. Earth, the sun travels through the sky, only return to the same place. Poetically speaking, the path is certain. The sun does not have a stopping place. This life keeps going. Wind, Solomon shows an understanding of the circus of the wind. There are paths in this world by which the wind travels. And in the end, it returns again, only to be again. The wind does not find rest. A total of five verbs are used in the Hebrew about the subject of wind when it's introduced. The movement of wind carries the connotation of a lot of action. However, close observation reveals the wind is consistent, reliable, hardly arbitrary. Water. The rivers never succeed in filling, fulfilling the ocean. They only return again to begin the path again. So what do I need to take away from that? How can I apply this to my life? Three things, here we go. Number one, there is an order and pattern to life, life's designed by God. So parents, especially if you have young children, this is huge. We get this in counseling all the time. Do not be obsessed with what your child is doing today. Be obsessed with what path they're on. Life is about paths. The book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes dwell almost entirely about what path you're on are your kids and grandchildren gonna mess up yes or no say it really loud yes or no yes the obsession is not the day-to-day behavior as much as what path they're on Parents will obsess about it, especially in very traditional conservative churches. They come in, my child smoked this, my child did this, my child's dating somebody, and I don't know. Yes, those are important things, and we can talk about them. But the bigger issue is what? Path they're on. Why should your child go to camp? Your child should go to as many camps as possible in church for this reason, so they can make friends through church that they'll have the rest of their life. My best friends to this day, most of them, I made when I was 13 and 14 years old, and they were believers. That has to do with a what? A path. Well, you always did really good things, Christian things with those friends. No, we didn't. We didn't. But at 50, we all still show up at the same funeral together for our friends, and we love Jesus. What path? are they on your consistency they're going to go through difficult times they're not always going to make the best choice because you didn't either but what path they're on i'll give you a verse that i hardly ever i shouldn't say this i'm going to give you my interpretation train up a child in the way she'll go when he's old will not depart from it one extreme is that's a guarantee your kid will be fine the other extreme is to make it say something in Hebrew. It never same psychologically. means, well, if they have a bent towards, they like chess, teach them chess, and they'll be okay. Just take a step back. You know Ecclesiastes, you know Proverbs. It's poetry. Here's what it says. Train up a child in the what? Get them on the right what? Path. The whole book of Proverbs is about paths. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is about paths. So here's the question for you to enjoy your life. What path are you on? One of my favorite probably stories is the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland. Uh, I got a picture of this framed. Uh, Alice is walking along. Cheshire Cat's up in the tree. It's a great dialogue, and Alice uh, says, "Which way should I go?" And if you know the story, the Cheshire Cat says, "Where do you want to get to?" And Alice says, "Well, it doesn't matter." the cheshire cat says well then it doesn't matter there's no guarantees in this life there's not but there are paths is what ecclesiastes says and we'll see later they don't happen for everyone but there's paths meaning if i want my life to end this way and i envision for it to end i have to decide now what path i'm on most of the time discipleship christianity are you on the right what Path. We do a lot of counseling in our counseling center. And I don't want to ever share things; would give things away, but it's amazing to me. Um, a marriage will fall apart, and the divorce will happen. Well, why is that second divorce rate in the 70 percent? And I can tell you what happens: the person going into the second marriage never changes their what. talking to somebody recently, and and it's not about a timetable, jumping in too quick, all those cliche things, literally setting, talking to them, and then I just finally said, you know what, because the last one, not good, a lot of pain, I'm just looking at her, I said, it sounds like you gotta think about the next person you're picking has a lot of similarities to the first person, (laughs) change what, path. Going through this uh, message, this morning the message, Phil's talking about strongholds. Well, I've never been able to break the stronghold. Well, then the path you've done it with before obviously wasn't the right one. Change what? Paths. That's what he's saying. Although there's a lot of action in lives, the paths are certain. So there is a predictability to life. Not a guarantee. That's not what Hebrew poetry teaches. Not a guarantee. But I, I'm just going to be honest with you here. Uh, I could eat right, get my cholesterol down, which I've never done in my life, and um, do all those things. And I can tell you stories of people who um, dropped dead out of nowhere or had accidents befall them. Okay? There's no guarantees. But, but I will tell you this. If I were to consume alcohol at a high rate, it smoke my entire life. The predictability of life says at some time in my life, what's probably not going to work so well? My what? There is a predictability. Well, I could be lazy and not really work hard and maybe win the lottery. It does happen. And then those people are all over the news. Okay? But is that likely? No. But there is predictability to life, and you find it in the book of Proverbs. If I work hard, and Ecclesiastes says, I love my work then I'm going to enjoy my what? Life. Meaning there is a predictability with all of it. All right, the next passage. All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. But which has been is what will be, and which is done is also what will be done. And is there anything new under the sun on this planet? Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. You say, this is depressing. It is not, it is reality. I was at a church before, we had a huge ball field, still there. It was awesome. And they all had all of these names, but somebody wanted to name it after a former pastor, and they put it on a plaque. Now, I know that former pastor because I know the heritage of the church. I know all this stuff. But there's a name, kind of like a legacy. But the park abides. New kids come every year. New kids come every year. New kids come every year. Do you think they really stop and pay attention to that name? We are not living to put our names on buildings or planes. We're not living for that type of legacy, because here's the reality. People will soon what? Forget. There's another legacy we can live for with eternity, but not that legacy. Well, I will enjoy my life because if I do all of these things, they'll build something, and they will always remember me. And Solomon says, no, under the sun, they won't. They won't. So don't live for that because you'll never really find what in this life? Enjoyment. Those are the things that we have to hold on to. Impressions. Life is limiting. So here we go from that passage. One cannot see it all, taste it all, feel it all, experience it all. This is something I hear. And, and here's the deal. i got to be careful. Here's what I really think about the term millennials, I'll be honest with you. Uh, uh, overused. I, one guy was asked, how do you minister to millennials? A like, guy I really respect you to read. Number one, I don't, and I don't call them that. Here's what that means. There are some similarities that are always to youth. Okay. Well, what makes millennials different? Oh, they grew up in information, technology, age, and globalization. That really made it different. But you say, what do you hear a lot from your gen- I want to experience this. 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 Huge experiences, a lot more than material possessions, which would be different from my generation X and baby boomers and silent generation. But you go through here. Number one, you cannot see it all, taste it all, feel it all, or experience it all. So here's what Solomon's arguing. You better be in the What? Well, I'm looking for the next big experience. My wife's great at this. Playing with grandchildren. She does this with me all the time. All of a sudden, I'm having a conversation. I'm talking. I'm somewhere else. I'm doing something else. And she'll just reach over, put her hand on my leg, and she'll just go, be here. Yes. The other things will come later. And I struggle with that. I'm not going to see it all, taste it all, feel it all, and experience it all. But here's the beauty of it all. I don't have to do that to enjoy this life. Next, labor will not provide fulfillment under the sun. Whoa, what? You know, I shared about the death rate going up. Here's something else that's coming to our society. I was just listening to this the other day. This will be in the political election in two years. So if you hadn't heard it on the news, you heard it now. Artificial intelligence is coming. There are six basic um, jobs for, and I'm talking about me, for men my age without a college degree, men in their 50s. By the way, our suicide rate is going up greatly. One of those jobs is we drive trucks. And in 10 years, they won't need me anymore. Because the truck will be driven by artificial intelligence. And it won't have to stop, and it won't just get to drive 14 hours, and it won't need a potty break, and I won't have to stop at a restaurant. Here's the deal. I want to find fulfillment in my work. You will not find fulfillment in your work under the sun. But here's what he says. But you can still enjoy your what? Your work. Find a way to enjoy it. The reason for that is it's limiting. There'll come a day when I can't do what I do anymore. Now, that happens in my life. I started out, I taught four and five-year-olds at church, and then I was a junior high pastor. I remember when I gave it up. I gave it up when I no longer enjoyed hanging out with junior high kids. I didn't. I went to a movie one night, had four of them with me, and I sat there, and I thought I'd rather be home. And it was like God was speaking to me, and he literally said, you know what, Jeff? You don't want to hang out and play with him anymore. It's time you let what? Somebody else do it." season was over. All of the seasons of our life, but our work, they'll eventually be what? Over. Enjoy the season you're in, but don't think this brings you the ultimate fulfillment in your life. Labor produces nothing new. And labor does not produce lasting benefit. Even the memory of labor's achievements will fade. This isn't supposed to be depressing. He's saying, don't look for that to find what in life? Enjoyment. Because it won't happen. Next after that, and this is a good argument for Solomon being the author. Koalad is the Hebrew word, the speaker. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. doesn't mean it's without meaning. Vanity, it means it's like a hand breath. It's quick. It has no substance. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has made great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. That's another word in Ecclesiastes. And here it goes. And he who increases knowledge increases what? Sorrow. Well, that's a bad thing. No, it's a reality when he's going through that. The impressions from this. The phrase over in Jerusalem on your notes there is meant to emphasize Solomon. Only David and Solomon ruled over Israel from Jerusalem. He speaks in the first person. This marks a transition in the book that will continue until he goes back to the third person in 12.8. So... Solomon writes as a scientist observing and experiencing life for himself. He's not dealing in hypotheticals on a larger scale. God isn't either. So basically, the Bible specifically in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes is not a book of suggestion or general truths. It is a book of statements of reality, God's reality. The metaphor of the path is fixed. You might be able to go Find a prostitute, have sex, and get happily married, and your wife, life will work out. That could happen. The book of Proverbs says more often than not, she'll take you to hell And the Hebrew phrases, you'll end up with a banquet in the grave. Now, I'm not saying that'll happen every time. The book of Proverbs isn't like every time, but it is saying this. The overwhelming way that God designed life is if you take that path You'll wake up one day thinking you're feasting and you'll look around in the book of Proverbs and it says everything around you is corpses. So get off of that what? Path. The use of the word travail contains the image of a path that will bruise us at times. Solomon calls us the business of life. Is this life bruising, yes or no? Live a little longer. Tony Evans used to share this illustration. I heard him speak once at the church I was at before. It was really good an ocean liner like a cruise ship and they keep saying there's bad weather up ahead. And the captain doesn't change course and they say, you need to go around that, no. More calls come in, bad weather up ahead, change course, no. Third time, captain, bad weather up ahead and he finally says that this boat was made to withstand the weather. There's a French dramatist, he says this, Jesus did not come into this world to remove our pain and explain it, but rather to fill it with his presence. We'll see next week in Proverbs chapter 3, there are things predetermined in your life by God you are going to go through that are going to be really what? Hard. Will this life bruise you? Yes. Solomon recognizes that. But it's still possible to enjoy your what? Life. I think, going back to the bottom, Solomon took some time to commune fellowship with his heart. He had a sense of who he was. Do we commune with our own heart? Now, this is where I'm a little weird, but I do. When did you start this? I started this in high school. I would go out and shoot baskets under the stars at night, and I would think about these kind of things. Why am I here? Where am I going? (laughs) What am I doing? I think I got it from my dad. That's what Solomon does. Those are the big questions. The application. Do I ponder big questions? Who am I? Where am I going? Do I choose to be happy? Solomon didn't just understand wisdom. He understood madness and foolishness. This is interesting. The journey that increases wisdom and knowledge will increase grief and sorrow. This is the path we must pursue. That seems kind of counterintuitive, but it's really not. So I will tell you this, and this is kind of the counseling thing. Those who grieve the best are the happiest I want to run from pain. I want to run from things. Now, counselor's is a little weird. You know, we love awkward silence. You know, there's a room and all of a sudden nobody's talking. We're like filled up. People are jittery. They don't want to talk. You know, get a bunch of men in a group. Someone talks about feelings. They all clam up. Who's going to break the tension? Don't break it. Let it be frustrating. It's great. Here's what he's saying. In fact, he'll say this later in the book. It's better to go into the house of sorrow. Why? When you do sadness well. And you grieve well, you're gonna enjoy this life. What? Well, you will. He's going through this idea here of communing with your own heart in those things. Then he says, This I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. This is the things we tend to think will make our life better. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is bad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the first few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, I planted vineyards for myself, I made myself gardens and parks, planted them in all kinds of fruit trees, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than anyone who had been in Jerusalem before me, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasures of kings and provinces, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men." So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, from my heart found in pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now, that's quite a list, and I have it on your sheet there. He experiences joy, pleasure, wine, and laughter. Well, page 16, here's the list. He asked, what does this accomplish? So here's what he explored. First, he explored wine, probably as a connoisseur, not alcoholic here. He explored folliness, which was foolishness. Great works, houses, vineyards, gardens, orchard, trees, pools. The imagery goes... To the establishment of a kingdom of God, paradise. He owned male and female servants as well as their offspring. He owned cattle. He owned silver and gold. He enjoyed music from a choir of men and women singers and concubines, women who were skilled in sexual performance. Those were all the things. And here's what he says. He summarizes the experiment by saying he was great, increased before all of them in Jerusalem. He retained his wisdom. He acquired everything he wanted to see. And his portion was large. We saw last week there are portions on this planet. His life produced a portion that no other man could attain. And then he concluded this. Here's his conclusion. There's no lasting profit left over from pleasure. (laughs) Pleasure and accomplishment are vanity, unsubstantial and transitory. Pleasure and accomplishment are vexation of spirit feeding on the wind. And there's no profit under the sun. No matter what one accumulates during this life on earth, there's nothing left over after one dies. What we accumulate on earth makes no difference after death. That's not how to enjoy your life. He who dies with the most toys wins? No, he who dies, dies. There's no enjoyment in that. You say, well, then I shouldn't have things. No, that's not what he says. If you have a four-wheeler and you want to take your grandson on that and drive or your granddaughter and drive him around in a field and enjoy relationships and stuff, you can enjoy your life that way. But it's not because you're acquiring a bunch of stuff. The rich people aren't any more enjoying their life than we are. There's no profit under the sun. No matter what one accumulates during his life on earth, there's nothing left over after one dies. What we accumulate on earth makes no difference after death. There's no lasting profit. Then he says this I turned myself to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. What's the event that happens to everyone? They all die. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was any more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. There's no more remembrance of the wise and of the fool forever since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as a what? Fool. Therefore, I hated life because of the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me and all this vanity. The impressions of this. You can reach the same conclusions as a king, but you cannot reach new ones. You can be as wise as Solomon, but you won't be any what? Wiser. Next, wisdom does excel, exceed foolishness. Everyone dies, their legacy does too. If you look for profit and pleasure, you will hate what? Life. You see, what is this? It's how he designed the tricycle. He's telling you, so you think back. I mean, this would be the class everyone should learn going into college. These things are good, but they will not make you happy. You really want to see it? Maybe I'll show the clip. Go watch Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams' speech. He gives on why we like poetry and not. Architecture and stuff. <laughs> Just go look at that. It is true. Basically, those things aren't going to do it. Then he says this that I hated all my labor which I toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Is that not true? <laughs> and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool? Solomon's sons were fools, by the way. Yet he will rule over all my labor which I told him, which I've shown myself wise under the sun. This also was vanity. Therefore, I turned my heart in despair of all the labor which I toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labors with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who's not labored for it. I used to be, um, worked for GMAC. Car dealerships were notorious for this. Somebody worked really hard back in that day, uh, usually owned by men. It's changed since then. They'd build up the dealership. They'd be in a town, and eventually they would have a son, and they would want to leave it to the what? The son. Sometimes it was successful. Oftentimes it What? It wasn't, and it would crash. And then by the time I got to the third generation, oh my. This also is vanity and great evil. For why does a man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart, which he has toiled under the sun, for all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome, even in the night his heart takes no rest? This is also vanity. Hold on a second here. Impressions. Someone hates the idea that the fruit of his work will be left to another. Here's the deal. I'm working to have a legacy and a heritage on earth. That's not the reason to work. Because you're not going to be here. Someone else is going to take it and they're probably going to what? <laughs> mess it up. Okay? Solomon's children were fools. Worrying about not taking your portion beyond the grave will make us sorrowful. I'm just going to surround and think I'm going to die one day and none of this matters. Woe is me. Nope, that's not what Solomon says to do. So what does he say? He's going to say this five or six times in the book, and we're going to end with this. I want you to take this in. Man, two chapters there. Well, reality, what am I supposed to do? Here's what Solomon says. Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his what? Now, this is not hedonism. Here's what he says. You know what the best thing you can do, Jeff? Eat. Drink and enjoy your work. Well, that's gluttony. Nope. What's the best thing about eating and drinking? There's a few things. Give me some things. We like food. It's satisfying. There's the big one, but there's something even bigger than that. What? Food brings people together. Now, I know this is a little bit hokey, and I did grow up watching the Waltons, so I'm just going to say I did. But here's the deal. Food and drink are about community and relationships. Eat with your kids as long as you can. You know, it's funny. A Baptist, you said good things happen around food. Now, I'll tell you the thing, and I'm not going to get into the alcohol thing. Wine is not something you're supposed to drink at home by yourself to escape from your problems. Wine was intended to be something you drink in groups and community, the celebratory. It's supposed to be that, and he'll get to that later. Now, I'm not working to leave anything behind, and I'm not working to have a legacy, but he still says I'm supposed to what? I will enjoy my life if I enjoy my work. I do enjoy my work. I counsel and I get to teach. I'm not creating a legacy for me here right now, but I can tell you 100%. I love teaching. I have my own life. I get to do what I love. And I always have. So I ought to what? Enjoy it. Enjoy it. And I still can. There'll come a day when I won't. I won't be able to. So I better enjoy it now. This also I saw was from the hand of God. So it's not hedonism. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I for God gives a gift, wisdom, and knowledge, and joy to a man who is good in his sight. But to the sinner, he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping after the end. Carpe diem, the passage is many, list the first of many at the page 17. Three, we'll see it. Three again, we'll see it. Chapter five, we'll see it. Chapter eight, we'll see it. Chapter nine, the best thing you can do in this life is enjoy it. It is not meaningless. I give you the eat and drink, enjoy your labor, recognizing the goodness of labor. And the good recognize God and enjoy life and receive wisdom. This is a difficult concept for many to grasp, but we know it in our heart is true. So just be honest. I'll give you some things for some of you. Do you enjoy your children? If you were lucky enough in this life to follow in love with somebody who fell back in love with you, how good is that? If you are not in a nursing home, apologize if you are and they their religion tonight, no offense here, but if you're not in one yet, and you can still walk and get up, and you can still taste food and enjoy it, and you can still hang out with friends and live life together, and you can still go to the funeral of your friends and cry with them, you've got everything. Eternity's eternity is the add-on. I told you last week, my dad said this, if there was no eternity and no heaven, it's still the better way to live your life. It's true. That's the idea. It's slowing down and saying, the simple things of life I will what? Enjoy. It doesn't really matter how nice a car I'm driving or how nice a house I have, but it does matter who I'm hospitable to in my house and who I enjoy eating with. And you might live in a shed and be happier and enjoy your life more than the McMansions that literally would. No offense, totally would. Ecclesiastes is free. You just slow down and realize this life is limiting, but I can want Enjoy it. Does that make sense? All right, so that's it for tonight. So I know Phil does this. Uh, Is there a microphone? Who's got questions? I'll take them for about 15 minutes here, and then we'll be done. Any questions on it or things that come to mind? And you don't have to, by the way. (laughs) Anyone? Things you don't understand or unclear about the book? Not that guy. Yeah, this is a little off topic, but is there any evidence that uh, Plato and Aristotle would have had access to Ecclesiastes when they were developing their philosophy? I don't know the answer to this. I know this. Aristotle observing life as as a scientist to see how things would happen is very close to how Solomon wrote. So they would have wrote the same way. Um, Plato usually comes along, like I said, at the same time as Micah, and if you're really going to get into that deep, it's this, how much of the time period between when Malachi writes his book and Jesus comes, that inner period, how much of that is influenced by Plato and how much of that is truly really influenced by the Bible. So I would think, yeah, they probably did know what he said. <laughs> And then they were writing somewhat contrary, but at times they borrowed things. Like, to be honest with you, existentialism doesn't come along until the 1800s. Man, Solomon's writing about it. You better know you're going to die one day." And that's how existentialists wrote, then they would have known what he said. so Any other questions? What?: Oops, Oh yeah, if you didn't get it outlined this week or next, oh, do we have enough this week? Oh, I will bring more copies next week, okay? So here's the thing. Okay, before Okay, go ahead. Yep. Mike, uh, you've said you said the word hedonism a couple times. Yeah. Today, can you just go ahead and just define and contrast perhaps yes. Christian hedonism and what Yeah. Here, right? here's what I'm saying. Hedonism would be it's all about me just enjoying my life doing whatever. But when you add it's got an existential flavor to it, it means whatever makes me feel good is okay. So, in existentialism, it's called the absurdity of life, and you really end up with it doesn't matter what I do. So, if I feel good having sex with a bunch of different people, and if I feel good eating whatever I want, even if it hurts you, then it always to myself. This is different than that because it's saying, no, this life is designed, and the way to enjoy it is the way God's designed it. And, and, I, and this will get into, I'll just say this real quick, you'll hear me say it over, this is the... The construct I work from, we were created the image of God, Mago day. We were created to be in a relationship with God and each other, and I know relationships overused in, the, in our time today, but we really were. And basically what happened when sin entered the world is I lost, my image of God was diminished in me, okay? And what has really happened is I'm less human than I was created to be, and I'm not really a very good lover, and I don't mean sensually of people. So what happens? Um, They no longer feel like they belong in the garden. They no longer feel like they belong with God. The sons are killing each other by, well, one kills the other by chapter 4, and the whole thing falls apart. So Jesus comes to die on the cross, and heaven is a great idea, and I do believe in it. But the real reason he came was to make us fully human again and live our life the way it was intended. So the reason I am growing as a Christian is to be a better lover of people. This goes kind of against hedonism which is this. I will enjoy my life the most when I'm loving what? Other people. And that is your big construct that's different. And I do believe that is true. It's funny when we'll take people even through 12-step programs for addiction, eventually later through the program, even they have to get to the point where they realize it's just not all about what? Them. And so, but that's a great question because this sounds like, it sounds like hedonism, But the difference is, no, this is a life designed by God. And you'll see by the end, um, you're supposed to be in community with people, two or three are better than one. You're familiar with the verses, cast your bread upon the water. Those are all benevolent things that have to do with community. So once again, what should you be saying to your teenagers? Are you in community? What path are you on? Are you enjoying these things? Well, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to do all these things. That's great. Just realize this, that's not going to really allow you to what? Enjoy your life. Okay. All right. Another one. Got about a couple more minutes. Oh, he's got a mic there. Um, If you, I had a note in my Bible from a previous study that uh, referred me from Ecclesiastes back to 1 Kings chapter three, okay. speaks to your point the most important thing is how we relate to others yes this dream describes what he asked god for and i mean it's, 50, it's the first 15 verses of first so 15. first kings so first i would kings do, chapter three is and i would three. encourage you all first kings chapter three that thank you yeah. to read that yeah. i tell you if you get in the book of proverbs um which solomon most surely wrote and he says um It's a poem, but he says, my dad had a talk with me one day, and he says, basically, here's the poem. When you're getting a bunch of stuff in life, and then all you're getting, be sure to get what? Wisdom. And then one day, God comes along to him, and he says, hey, Solomon, what do you want? And he got this right before he turned into an apostate idolater. (laughs) He says, what was I supposed to get? Wisdom. And Ecclesiastes is this is how. And wisdom is a skill in Hebrew. It's not like I'm really smart. By the way, your IQ, blame your parents. That ain't going to change much. But you know what? Wisdom is a skill you learn and it's a skill to make correct decisions and choices at opportune times in your life. And you live that way and you can really have a life to enjoy. So here's I'm going to finish it tonight. Um, I'm going to pray and then I'll give you a charge and we'll be done. Okay, and I will get more handouts for next week. Dear Lord, I love you. Lord, I, I am so thankful for this gift, my existence, this life the relationships I have, the friends I have, the family I have. I want to enjoy it. I want to live it the way you designed it. Lord, I pray everyone who's here, a lot of them bruise sorrows. We look at relationships that are broken, and we can become discouraged. But I pray that they would leave this evening with a sense of this life is a gift. And that they would see that you want us to enjoy it. You desire for us to enjoy it. You rejoice when we enjoy it. And Lord, we could look at the areas of our life, the paths we're on. And Lord, maybe evaluate where we need to make different decisions. Lord, I pray we would continue and you would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. So go live well. All right. See you next week.